Awesome. Well, as you guys are grabbing your seats, we're so glad that you are here. I've got a few announcements for us tonight before we jump in. The first one is this, that this Sunday, November 20th, we are having baptisms here at Antioch. We love Baptism Sunday. I know a few of you are actually going to be getting baptized on Sunday, which is seriously so, so exciting. Baptism Sunday is the best. And if you're here tonight and you're like, oh, I need to get baptized too, it's not too late. We just need you to register on the link on our website. So if you need help finding that, let us know. And if you're one of the people that you're like, I want to get baptized, but I'm going home for Thanksgiving break, which makes sense. Um, Just reach out to a college staff member and let us know. We'll baptize you in a hot tub or a pool or a bathtub, whatever it takes. So just let us know if that's of interest to you. Second announcement is this. If you come here next week on Thursday, no one else will be here. So probably don't come. It's Thanksgiving, so we will not be having Thanksgiving, or we will be having Thanksgiving. We won't be having Awaken next week because of Thanksgiving. So hopefully you'll eat all the mashed potatoes and maybe some turkey that doesn't taste like napkins, which is what my life group decided last night. So (laughs) no Awaken next week, but the week after, December 1st, is going to be our last Awaken of the semester. Crying. Boo. So sad. So make sure you don't miss it. Make sure you bring a friend. Um, But don't worry, that's not going to be our last time together for the whole semester. The following week, on December 8th, I believe, at 7.30 here, which will be normal Awaken time, we are actually going to have our fancy Christmas party, which is a little bit of a change than we had announced before. Um, How many of you guys have been to our fancy Christmas party before? Okay, a third of you, maybe? Okay. Well, for those of you who don't know what it is, basically we get dressed up fancy. So think like you're going to a wedding, maybe would be the best way that I would describe it. If you need help, you can reach out personally to me and I'll help you figure it out. So if you need to bring something fancy back from home with you this weekend, make sure you grab it. Um, But what we'll do is we'll eat some delicious treats. We might sing a Christmas carol or two. We'll take some pictures. We might dance a little. And we're also going to do something new this year where we share testimonies about what God has done this semester. And really, it's just a sweet night to celebrate what God is doing, what God has done, and to end the semester on a note of community. So be there, okay? December 8th, sound good? Awesome. It's crazy that we're already in the holiday season. Well, if I have not met you, my name is Stosh, and I am part of GCU college staff here at Antioch. Whoop, whoop, lobes up. We love ASU and community college too. And tonight, I originally, back in August, when I prayed about what I was going to speak on, felt like God said relationships. I was like, cool, relationships. And then about a week ago, God came and was like, hey, actually, I want you to talk about suffering. I was like, oh, that's a little different than relationships. It's a little less fun, probably. And so I did what I usually do when God tells me to do something, and I'm like, eh, don't know if that was God or not. And I go to Chris, and I'm like, hey, so this is kind of what I feel like God said, you know, hoping he'd be like, yeah, probably not, maybe next semester. He was like, no, that's good. That's the Lord. I'm like, oh, well, now I have to do it because now I have accountability in the process of hearing God. And so this week, I have sat down and stared at my laptop and been like, cool, so God, you're going to have to help me because this is not a fun topic to talk about. 
And I sat there on Tuesday and on Wednesday, and then I rewrote my whole sermon today because that's just how it goes. And not because I don't have anything to talk about with suffering. Um, Actually, I would say a lot of my life has been marked by suffering. And so as I was beginning to process with God what to talk about tonight, it was actually a little bit painful. It was like, man, some of this stuff I don't want to remember. But then I felt like God began to flip it in my mind, and he was like, but if you remember, then you can remember why we're still here, why you're still in the game with me. And so tonight, this might be a little bit heavier of a topic, but the reality is, guys, that pain is the universal language that we all speak. Everybody has pain. You don't even have to speak someone's actual language to know that they speak pain. It's crazy. When we go on mission trips overseas, you're like, I can't even talk to you, but I can see pain, and I can pray for you, and I can meet you in that place. We all have pain, and the reality of the Christian life that we see over and over again in Scripture, I was shocked by how many Scriptures there are about suffering that I read this week, is that we're promised it. And I think sometimes we go around and we're like shocked. We're like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Something hard's happening. I'm suffering. What do I do? And if we look at the Bible, that's actually kind of the normal part of the Christian life. We can expect suffering But there's a difference between suffering with Jesus and allowing Jesus to take that suffering and make you look more like him in the process and just suffering and getting a bad attitude and getting bitter and angry at the Lord. And so this week, as I've been processing with the Lord, there's a lot of questions that came up that maybe I'm the only one that's ever had them, but I'm guessing not. Questions like, why does suffering happen Why does God allow loss, disappointment, pain, death, hope deferred, suffering? Why would a God who's really actually good allow bad things to happen? Anybody else ask those questions before? A few of us? Okay, cool. Like three of us in the room? That's great. The reality is that we all know the answer to those questions, right? We're like, this is what you got to do. Just got to say, God is good. God is good all the time. God is good. Or we quote that awesome scripture that I actually really deeply love from Genesis 50, where it's like, they're talking about Joseph, and he's like, man, what you intended for evil, God's redeemed it for good. And that verse is really powerful, but if you're in the middle of it, it's not super helpful. Or I know a lot of times in suffering, I've been told like, you know, you probably just need to pray more. Like, right, okay, I'll go do that. Or they're like, hmm, your faith is really lacking. So if you can just get your faith to a better place, the suffering will be over. Or maybe if you just deal with that sin in your life, then it'll be over. Because that's how God works, right? We fix ourselves up and then he comes and ends suffering. None of those answers are good to those questions. And I'm not really trying to mock those answers. In some ways, they're half-truths. God is good. God does redeem evil for good. And the reality that God is good can't be lost on us. Malia talked about that last week of like, we have to make sure that we're not measuring God's goodness by our own standard of goodness, but by who he says he is and by his standard of goodness. But what happens in our spiritual journeys is that we run into walls. And these walls are moments of suffering where God feels far, where his character feels untrustable. And the why questions that we have begin to turn into walls that prevent us from intimacy with Jesus in the journey. 
And so my prayer tonight, guys, is that as we talk about suffering, we're not just talking about like suffering, but we're talking about how to endure in suffering, how to press through so that we can meet with Jesus in it and allow him to work through suffering in our lives. Because here's the thing, guys, I don't want any of us in this room to give up. Most of us have lived about 20-ish years. A lot of us in this room probably have a lot of pain and suffering, but most of us are also gonna live to like, I don't know, 75, 80. I don't know what the age is that most people live to. There's a lot ahead of us. And if we don't learn how to press into suffering now, someday it might take us out. Like, have you ever wondered why there seems to be a lot of like 20-year-olds excited about Jesus, but not a lot of 80-year-olds? I think if we don't learn how to do business with pain and suffering, it takes us out of the long haul game with Jesus. Suffering is a marker of the Christian life. It's inevitable. But suffering unto Jesus and being made more like Jesus in the process is up to us and on how we respond. And I, I'm gonna share different parts of my story tonight about suffering, but I would just say this on the front end, guys, that suffering is gonna look different for each of us in this room. And so as I share stories tonight, maybe you can't relate with the specific suffering that I've gone through, but you have pain in your life, you have suffering. And so we're not gonna compare in this room of like, oh, but what they've gone through is worse than me, or my suffering's not really that bad. You know, instead I want us to just tap into that feeling that feeling of pain that we all can relate to. And if we can tap into that place and get some structure for what to do with it and how to press into Jesus, I think it's gonna set us up really well to keep walking with Jesus. Because I've seen God move in the craziest ways in my lowest moments. And if it wasn't for the suffering in my life, I would not be up on the stage talking to you for sure. I don't wanna be up here. That wasn't my plan for my life. I had a lot of other plans for my life that God took away from me in seasons of suffering, but I wouldn't change it. And so we're gonna talk about it tonight. My freshman year at GCU, um, I moved in, an expectant little freshman, so excited for what God had for me. And my first semester was pretty good. I was super busy. I stayed up till 3 a.m. almost every night. Um, I had like eight classes or something crazy, but I was busy. I did a lot of things. And then in the course of a week, I went from living my life, loving Jesus, doing what I wanted to do, to starting to feel kind of sick all the time. And at first I thought it was just the Chick-fil-A, like I got some bad nuggets or something from Chick-fil-A. And I was like, you know, I'm not really used to eating this much fast food, so this kind of makes sense. But then I woke up the next day, and I ate breakfast, and I was like, ooh, I don't feel good. And then I ate lunch, and I was like, ooh, that doesn't feel good either. And what started out as like this momentary like stomach ache turned into some pretty serious health issues pretty quickly. And I remember calling my mom. I was like laying on the floor in my dorm room, as one does, and I'm like, mom, something's wrong like really wrong. I was like, I don't have the flu. I don't have a stomach bug. Like something's wrong. Something's up with my health. And so I went home. I went and saw a doctor. I like had a seizure in the doctor's office. They were like, oh, something's going on with you. This is not good. And so they took a bunch of blood work. They sent me back to school. But what proceeded to happen was that slowly, bit by bit, every day, I just got sicker and sicker and sicker. And what I mean by that is all food made me sick. I couldn't sleep at night. I like had crazy insomnia where I'd be up till like four in the morning, 
not because I was out partying on the Grove lawn, but because I like was wide awake, just like wired. And when I would fall asleep, I would lose feeling in my feet and my hands. Super weird. And then some other stuff started happening, like my hair started falling out, started having crazy joint pain in my body where it was like painful to write and type. I had brain fog and then also food and I were just like not friends. And so in the course of like literally a month, I went from being like energetic, go-getter. I was like on scholarship in the dance department at GCU. I was like doing cross training, doing all these things to being this girl who was like in her bed all the time. I spent more time in my bed than I did anywhere else on campus. And the whole time I'm sitting there like, what is going on? Like, Lord, I was so expectant for this freshman year (laughs) at GCU and all the promises that you had given me And here I am, stuck in my own body, my body that doesn't even feel like my body anymore because it's so marked by pain now. And I don't know what to do. And God didn't just come and tell me the answer to why he was allowing it to happen. I asked a lot, like, why are you doing this? What's the point of this? But instead, and this is a funny thing about God, is if we actually take space to listen, he likes to ask us questions too. Have you guys noticed that about him? And so he started asking me questions, and he said things like, but do you believe I'm with you in the midst of all of this? Do you believe I love you? I was like, not really. This doesn't feel super loving. He said, do you believe I can heal? I was like, maybe. He's like, I want to see you heal, but I don't really want to be the person that you have to heal. Can you heal somebody else so I can see it and believe it? But in the questions, I kept crying out to God. I kept spending time with him. And I wrestled with this reality that he wasn't actually calling me to understand what I was going through, but that he was calling me to trust him. He never gave me an answer for why any of that was going on. But he did continue to invite me to be with him in this season. And so in the discouragement that felt inescapable every day, when what I used to be able to do, I couldn't do anymore. In the reality that I just kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And in the reality, I don't know if any of you in the room have dealt with chronic illness or sickness before, but it's very isolating and it's very lonely. And it was this loneliness and this isolation that I had never had before and didn't know what to do with And so at some point during this season, I had a friend give me Isaiah 43. It's kind of a banner word over all that God was doing in me. If you guys want to, you can turn there with me. But I'm going to read the first four verses of it. It says this, But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And I'm going to just pause right here. I would read this scripture over and over and over again, and I'd actually insert my name into this. So I'll show you what I mean in verse two. Stosh, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Stosh, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Stosh, since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you and nations in exchange for your life. It gets a lot more personal if you put your name into it. If you have a hard time connecting with scripture, 
10 out of 10 recommend. Put your name in it. He's speaking to you. But I would read these verses, guys, and these verses would challenge me to ask questions. I think that's what the journey of suffering does. I think it's part of the good part of it is that we ask questions. We ask God questions, and he asks us questions, and we listen, and we go back and forth. It's a relationship with God. And so I asked myself, would I trust that God was with me, as this verse was telling me, in the fire, in the flood, or in the very real, in the pain, in the loneliness of my day-to-day? Would I believe that he called me loved and precious, even if he didn't do what I wanted him to do? Or I very much realized that I could be cynical and distrusting of his love. And so here's the thing, guys. This wasn't just like a couple months of feeling this way. Literal years went by of this illness. And so I had one doctor, I went to visit them, and she was like, do you have friends? And I was like, what? She was like, I think you're making this all up in your head. I was like, I don't think so. I don't think that's what's happening. And so I was like, okay, we're not going to go back to that doctor. We go to a different doctor. And this doctor's like, yeah, you probably have cancer. I'm like, what do you mean probably? Like, can you run some tests? Went to another doctor and they're like, yeah, we're going to give you all these pills and we're going to change your diet. So basically just like fruits and vegetables. I'm like, great. What about Chick-fil-A? I'm going to miss it. And basically, there was just a whole lot of confusion about what was wrong with me. So not only was I confused what was going on with the Lord, nobody had an answer for what was wrong with me or a diagnosis. It was just like stuck in this limbo. And during this time, I remember I was starting to get super discouraged because at this point, when you're suffering, you're like, oh, this sucks. And then you like rally and you're like, but God is good. And like, he's with me. And then if it goes on for any length of time, you're like, oh, we're still here. Like, if I knew there was an end in sight, maybe I could trust God. But since there's no end in sight and there's no answers and no clarity, like, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. And there were a few distinct nights that I still remember in that time where it was like the worst pain I've had in my entire life. And I remember being on the bathroom floor of my GCU dorm, which is disgusting, and just feeling the worst pain of my life. And I remember laying there and I was like, God, either heal me or like, take me to be with you. Like, I cannot take this suffering anymore. I was like, I'm desperate. Like, God, this suffering has driven me to desperation, and I don't know what to do anymore. And in the midst of that, I felt like, again, he said, I would like you to exchange your need for answers to simply come be with me. I was like, I've tried that already. It hasn't felt like it's gotten better. But I leaned in. And so in that season, I like structured my class schedule so that I went to class Tuesdays and Thursdays. Fun fact, I was in all the same classes as Chris, but that's a story for another day. And then Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I literally stayed in bed all day, like the entire day, because I was so sick. And I would sit in my bed, and I would pull out my Bible and my journal, maybe would drink some black coffee if I was feeling crazy with my veggie fruit diet, And I would spend time with God. And I would press into the secret place with him. And some days it was awesome, and some days it was hard. But over time, I began to just tap into this deeper place with the Lord that I had never been before. And something of faith just began to spring up deeper and deeper in me and in my heart. And that reality of Isaiah 43, rather than just being something that I had read, began to actually sink deeper and deeper into my heart. And what's crazy, you guys, is that now when I look back on that season of my life, 
It's marked most in my mind by the intimacy with Jesus that I had, sitting in my dorm bed with my Bible and my journal and almost nothing else. And I love how Paul puts it in Romans 5, verses 3 for 5. He says, We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Did you catch that endurance word there at the beginning? Problems and trials teach us to endure, which ultimately helps us know the love of God in deeper ways. And so when we avoid the trials of our lives, when we avoid the places of suffering and we don't press in, ultimately we miss out on the love of God and like really knowing the love of God. And I think sometimes when we talk about like knowing it in our heads, but not knowing it in our hearts, it's because we don't lean in in the times of suffering for him to make it more real to us. So how do we endure in suffering? We learn to sow into intimacy with Jesus in every season. And so part of this is that we build a pathway in our brain and just in our lifestyle to run to Jesus in all situations and seasons. We pave a path of intimacy. And so if you're in the room tonight and you're like, yeah, this is great, but like I'm not suffering. I'm in a great season. Awesome. Then like this is a season to sow into that intimacy when it's not as costly. And then when hard days come, and they will come, and I don't say that as a fearful thing or like a Debbie Downer thing, you already have paved a path there that you can return to. How do we endure in suffering? We recognize that intimacy is stunted when we don't trust his nature. We have to learn to choose to trust it. And so beating ourselves over the head, God is good, God is good, or he's kind, and being like, I don't feel that way at all. We don't just like keep hitting ourselves with words, but there is a place of choosing to trust. And it's like, God, I don't feel like you're good right now, but I'm going to choose to trust that you're good in this moment. And as Melia talked about last week, when we do that over and over again, we actually begin to believe that God is who he says he is. And we need it because intimacy with Jesus is the key to making it for the long haul. It's a sobering reality, guys, that we don't actually have the right to reevaluate who God is because of our pain. His nature is defined by his promise and history and testimony. And that's what we build our theology around, not how we feel about it on any given day. And so the things that we don't understand then, the loss, the suffering, the despair, the hopelessness, the pain, it therefore actually becomes a mystery that we can choose to lean into. And we can choose to lean into the mystery of God with his presence or not. We can choose to keep crying out for him or not. But we're going to miss him in the journey if we don't do it with him. I love verses 18 and 19 of Isaiah 43. They say this, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Meaning God is making a way where there should be no way. He's doing a new thing where a new thing absolutely cannot exist in the natural. 
And so if we're going to remain in suffering, we've got to stop looking back at the past and focusing on what we don't have anymore. And I think a lot of times in suffering, we're like, man, I just really miss how things used to be in high school when my life was glory. And the reality is it wasn't glory in high school or whatever. But in suffering, like we have the inability to just stay where we are in the moment that we have to like either daydream into the future or we have to look into the past because we want to live in both of those places and we don't want to live in the present. But here's the thing. God is in the present. His presence is with you in the present. He's been with you in the past. He goes in front of you in the future. But you're going to miss him in the present if you don't choose to keep your feet grounded here. And so we have to take on his perspective of suffering that suffering actually is an opportunity for more. It's not here to ruin our lives, even though it's hard and it feels like it ruins our lives. But God in his kindness redeems everything he touches. And so he can even take suffering and redeem it. And he does this regardless of whether we perceive him doing it or not. So our ability to understand just doesn't really matter. Our ability to know or see what he's doing doesn't dictate whether he's going to do it or not. He's out there in the desert, like, building a stream. That's what he does. He makes a way where there's no way. And something, guys, that I've learned about intimacy and suffering in this journey is actually found in the book of Job, um, which I wanted to talk more about Job tonight, but if you haven't read it, the whole book is about suffering, all 42 chapters of it. So if this is of interest to, to you at all, just go read that book. But... It's a theme of the book of Job that's been echoed throughout the Bible, and it's this. The greater the intimacy that we have with Jesus, the greater the power of God at work in our lives. The greater the intimacy we have with Jesus, the greater the power of God at work in our lives. We like that part, right? We're like, yes, intimacy and power of God. That's awesome. The part that we don't like is this. The greater the power of God at work in us, the greater the cost of suffering we're going to step into. Because great power in Christ and great intimacy with him is forged in the fire of suffering. Jesus certainly modeled that. He was the most powerful, and yet his whole life was suffering for us, chosen suffering. But I also love the example of Paul. If you want to, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 11, but I'm going to read through this. Paul was known, is known and revered as the greatest church planner probably that ever existed. Um, He was an evangelist, an apostle, and like I think almost all of Asia became reached by the gospel because of him. But this is what he said. In verse 23, it says, I've worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times, the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times, I was beaten with rods. Once, I was stoned. Three times, I was shipwrecked. Once, I spent a whole night adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities and the deserts and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. 
I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. He keeps going, but I'll stop there. Paul suffered a lot. But guys, Paul was so filled with the power of God that the book of Acts talks about like a handkerchief, like touching him and then being taken and other people got healed from a handkerchief that had touched him. He reached more people than most of us can probably ever hope to reach in our whole lives. And yet here, this is just one scripture where he talks about it. We see that he suffered in almost every way possible. And so we have to settle in our hearts that suffering isn't a sign of God's absence because suffering wasn't a sign of God's absence in Paul's life. But Paul's ability to remain faithful to God in the midst of incredible suffering was actually evidence that God was with him. And this is so important. We cannot lose sight of this. If we want to do great things with and for God, we must know that suffering will come. It's not something to be afraid of, but it is something to prepare for. And so if you're in here tonight and you're like, God, use me, use my life, there's going to be a cost. The cost is going to be worth it, but we can't be shocked. We can't be like, oh, no, I didn't see this coming. We saw it coming, okay? We're going to sow into getting ready for it so that it doesn't take us out, but that actually suffering leads to greater power and intimacy. That's probably going to lead to more suffering, but it's going to lead to greater power and intimacy with Jesus. And in this process, I think we need to take a look at our hearts, and we need to take a look at the questions that come up in our hearts when suffering comes. We don't have to hate on ourselves for questions coming up, but we do need to take ownership that they're there. Because the reality is that questioning who God is is a lordship issue more than anything else. God is not a vending machine. You don't just put a quarter in, or maybe you put like 15 quarters in because of inflation now, but you don't put a quarter in and just get exactly what you want out of him. You're like, yep, I'll take the Doritos, thanks. It's not how God works. He's a relational being. He's our friend. But before he's our friend, he's our Lord. And our friendship with God, that place of intimacy with him, can only go where his lordship has already been. Because the path of intimacy is first paved by his lordship in our life. And so once that path is paved, then the pathway of friendship will sustain us in the hardest of seasons. But there's something about his lordship that we have to settle in our hearts. Like if we're going to trust him the way we trust a friend, we have to settle lordship in our heart. We have to choose to come under him regardless of whether we understand or not. Because that's what it's going to take to remain and this is where the example of David becomes really helpful. Because you're like, yeah, that sounds great. But what does that actually practically mean? And I love David because David, in my opinion, he was an Enneagram 4. Because he just has all the emotions that you could ever imagine in the book of Psalms. And I love that they, like, change every psalm. You're like, he's on the mountaintop. He's in the valley. Like, oh, he's still in the valley. Oh, he's back on the mountaintop. And it's so relatable because that is what life is like. That's what life with Jesus is still like. Like our emotions still come into play. But the beauty about David is that David doesn't do a few things that I tend to do. One of those is like to deny that pain is there. And I'm like, deny, deny, deny. Like I'm gonna shove that down. I'm not gonna touch it. We're gonna just pretend that doesn't exist. 
The problem with that is that it like erupts like a couple weeks later and then it's way worse than it would have been if I had just dealt with it head on. But the other thing we can tend to do with pain is that we hyper focus on it. And then we like embrace a victim like mentality where it's like, mm, yeah, my friend caused me that pain. And now every time I view someone who's a friend, all I can think about is that pain that that other person caused me. And we like hyper focus and zero in on the pain and we live from pain constantly, even if it's something that happened five years ago. We like live in the trauma of it over and over again. David doesn't do either of those things. He doesn't sugarcoat his suffering in the book of Psalms. He doesn't yell, God is good, God is good at himself. Instead, he goes to God and he engages in the practice of lament intending his heart. And then he does it again and again and again. And he cries out for God again and again and again. And guys, if we're gonna remain in suffering, we are gonna have to get sick of hearing ourselves cry out for God again and again and again. And I love this song where he's singing like, I need you, God, I need you, God, I need you, God. Like we, we have to live in that place. God, I need you to come. I need you to come. I need you to come and take over. I need you to come. David says things like this. In Psalm 6:3, he says, My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Or Psalm 38, 9 through 11 says this. It says, All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds. My strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. He's pretty real about how he feels. And what I love about this is that rather than following his heart, that David then models in the Psalms, that he actually knows how to lead his own heart. Did you know that you can lead your heart? It doesn't have to lead you. If you guys want to turn to Psalm 13, we're gonna dig in here for just a minute. It says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And what I would call this is David tending his heart. And so we're gonna break this down for just a minute. If you look at verses one through two, what do we see David doing? We see him lamenting. So what we were just talking about. He's honest, he's raw, he's real. Everything that he's feeling in his heart, he brings to the surface and he expresses it to the Lord. Telling the Lord, how long? Like you're making me wait here. I'm tired of it. Have you forgotten me? How long are you gonna hide your face from you? So where's your presence? How long must I take counsel in my soul? The loneliness of that statement. He's pouring it all out there for the Lord to see. But then in verses three for four here, we see that David kind of shifts gears. So there's a place, guys, where we, we bring the rawness of our hearts and we give it to the Lord. But if we stay there, we're gonna stay in that hyper-focused place of looking at our pain. We're gonna get stuck. 
And so it's critical that we come back to the second thing that we see David do here. And that's that he then begins to pray a prayer of supplication. And what I mean by that is he tells God what he needs. He knows what he needs, which is something that we need to learn how to grow in, knowing what we need. But he asks God to come, consider and answer me. He's saying, God, I need you to answer. Would you come? Would you light up my eyes? Would you come? Would you bring joy? Would you bring life again? And so as we learn to tend our hearts, we have to be real with how we feel. But ultimately, we then come and give that to the Lord and we say, God, I need you to come help. I can't do anything to change this myself. Would you come? And then in verses five through six, we see another shift of what David does. We begin to see him praise and reflect on the character of God. He talks about the steadfast love of God. He talks about salvation. But what I love here is that he does it kind of in this future tense a little bit too. So he's like, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And it's, it's this place of he's like, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm going to proclaim your character anyways. I may not fully believe it in my heart right now, but I'm going to speak out the truth of who you are and I'm going to lead my heart there. So not because he necessarily believes these things in the moment, but because, but because through intimacy with God, he knows them to be true. This is where he ends his tending his heart. He's raw with his emotion, but he asks God to come and he speaks the truth of who God is. And he actually ends on a note of worship and thanksgiving. And I think a lot of times in suffering, we get stuck in complaining and being cynical. But we've got to get our hearts back to this place of thanksgiving and rejoicing in what God has done or what he is doing if we can. But if not, we can fall back on our history with him and that path of intimacy that we've paved in the past in order to sustain us in the present moment. David didn't follow his heart. He led his heart. And as we see in Psalms, there's 150 of them. They're not all written by David, but he had to do this a lot. And so this isn't gonna be like a one-time thing like, or you have like a Sabbath and you're like, yep, I'm gonna tend my heart, great, check. Can do that in another couple years. No, tending your heart is like a daily process. Taking stock of where you're at and doing something about it, taking ownership. We can all lead our hearts. And the main way that we lead our hearts is by paying attention to what we put our focus on because our feelings follow our focus. And what I mean by this, I don't know if you've ever had a friend who comes to you and they're like, hey, have you ever thought about like dating so-and-so? You're like, no, I haven't. But then you start thinking about it and you think about it every day and you see that person and you think about it. And about two weeks later, you're like, yeah, I like so-and-so. How did you know? Your friend spoke it into existence and then you put your focus and your feelings on that person. And when your focus was on them, your feelings followed. Don't do that to your friends. That's a side note. It's not very nice. It's not helpful. But guys, that's all of life. That's why advertising is a thing. They're like, look at this thing. Focus on it. Now you want it. And if we're going to lead our hearts, we're going to have to take stock of where our focus is because our feelings are going to follow it. And so if we're going to focus on all the negative, we're going to stay stuck there. But if we can do business with it, and then we can engage in supplication and thanksgiving and lament, we're going to get our focus back on Jesus. 
and we're going to be able to press in, and we're going to be able to endure suffering. But I think with all of this, all that we've talked about so far is more of like the internal journey of just us and Jesus. But I think there's an aspect of suffering that actually gets maybe more difficult when the suffering that we're experiencing is because of other people. Like, what do we do when we experience the sting of rejection or being misunderstood by friends that we were like, we're in it for life. Like, we're going to graduate and move to the same city and buy houses together and, like, raise our kids together. And then in the course of a night, you're like, oh, I was wrong. Or what do we do when family members walk away from Jesus? And maybe not only do they walk away, they like vehemently oppose Jesus. Like, don't talk to me about him. I don't want to know about that. What do we do if we're the only person in our family following Jesus? What do we do with that kind of suffering? I specifically, as I was praying tonight, I felt like that place of, of suffering and relationship and specifically family was just highlighted And so I'm going to share a little bit of my story with this. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not entirely sure why. This is just where I feel like the Lord kind of wanted us to begin to close tonight. And I think, I think maybe in America, it used to be like the perfect Christian families was like the norm. And I think because Christianity has been so deconstructed, it's been so watered down. And just like the family unit has been so just attacked, honestly, I think in our country, I think the reality that most of us have family that doesn't love Jesus is real. Like, I think it's probably the majority of us in this room that are dealing with that. And so I'm going to share a little bit of my story with that. So I'm the oldest of five kids. Probably some of you know a few of my siblings. Don't worry. The story I'm about to share is not about them. So don't worry. But there is a sister that I have that none of you have ever met before. And when my sister was little, she was the sweetest, cutest little girl ever. When she turned eight, she wanted to have a birthday party that was dedicated to Africa. And so for her birthday party, we ate African food and we had like this pile of trash that we like turned into toys because that's what people do in Africa, right? They like don't have toys, so they have to make their own toys. And it was this whole birthday dedicated to actually fundraising money to like go build an orphanage in Africa. And here's this little eight-year-old girl who's like, I want to move there someday. I'm going to open an orphanage. This is what God is calling me to do. But suffering was very rampant in my sister's life as well. And I remember in middle school and high school, she had a very, and very, very intense season of mental illness. And I also just want to say, guys, mental illness is a huge piece of suffering. Um, And specifically with mental illness, I think there's places of pressing into Jesus, and I think there's a place of not handling that by yourself, too. But my sister dealt with a lot of it by herself. And I distinctly today, as I was just praying and, and remembering, I had this memory of just her and I being in our bedroom. We shared a bedroom all growing up. And I remember she just cried. She was crying and crying and crying. And it was because she had no hope. The suffering was too big in her life. The mental illness in her life was consuming her. And I remember her crying, just saying, I don't have hope anymore. I don't have any hope for my future. And that season sucked. It was awful. 
But a few years passed. I went off to college, and my season of physical suffering ultimately ended, and God healed me. That's just not the point of our talk tonight. But I would love to tell you about that at some point. And I remember there was a day I was at college, and my sister was getting ready to graduate from high school. And so God had healed me, and I was so excited to call my family and tell them, And so I remember calling her and I'm like, God did this amazing thing. It was crazy. Can you believe it? And I remember she was like, yeah, that's cool. I'm like, that's cool. Are you kidding me? I've been sick for like three years and God just healed me and that's all. That's all you got. But she was like, yeah, that's cool. I remember hanging up the phone and being like, that was super weird. Like, I hope she's okay. I wonder what's going on. And about a week later, my family, um, she was actually in Africa at the time, which is a whole other thing. But my my family gets this message from her, and she's like, hey, I don't ever want to be around any of you ever again. I don't want to be in your family. And also, I don't love Jesus anymore, so don't talk to me about that whole Jesus thing anymore. And as you can imagine, my whole family is like, what? Where did this come from? Like, this is a whole new level of suffering and pain that we didn't know what to do with anymore. And it got worse. So a week after that, my mom is in an accident. She almost dies. She gets fight for life to the hospital. God was merciful. Um, She had like severe brain memory loss in the helicopter, but God somehow miraculously saved her life. But we have that happen. My sister comes back, she moves out. She gets a new cell phone number because she's like, don't ever text me again, don't ever call me. And then we proceed to watch her life unfold on Facebook for multiple years. But it gets worse. My family is a pastor's family and so all of this gets played out in front of the whole church because everybody knows her, everybody knows there's five kids, everybody also sees what's happening on Facebook. And so then there begins to be this personal place where people are like, what did you do? I'm like, what did I do? Like, yeah, what did you do to push her away? I'm like, what did I do? And people began to pick sides. People began to reject. People left my parents' church. My mentor from high school who had mentored me for years was like suddenly devil's advocate. And I was like, whoa, where did this come from? Where, did, where, where is all this? What do I do with all of this? But guys, this happened the months right after I got healed, right after my years of suffering. And so I knew what to do. I knew what to do because I had just spent the last three years of my life doing it. And God had healed me. God had released so much newness into my life. There was actually so much joy in this season of what God was doing in me, even as my family was falling apart. But I ran to the secret place. And I remember that summer, I would go downstairs to the bedroom that I had shared with her for years, and I would just lay on the floor, and I would read my Bible, and I would worship, and I would ask God questions, and I would let God ask me questions, and I would press into the suffering. And that whole situation with my family isn't over. This was like five years ago. This is still suffering that we're stepping into. And there's a place, guys, that we... We don't get to choose the duration of suffering, but we get to choose our response to it. And something that has stuck with me that actually gives me a lot of hope, because I know that story is really heavy, 
but it's that, that God is present in our suffering, and I actually have found him to be even more present in those moments of suffering than in any other moment. That's not to say he's not there in the moments of joy, but it's nothing like those moments of pain and grief where you don't know what to do. Like his presence is just like so close. And sometimes I think it's lost on us that Jesus understands. Like he gets it, guys. He gets it so much that Isaiah 53 is a chapter in the Old Testament that's literally dedicated. It's like the suffering servant is what it's called. And it says this, it says, Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. We can't miss the humanity of Jesus in the midst of our suffering because the reality is that he suffered, that he knows what rejection feels like because he was rejected. He was betrayed. Like Judas, that's the ultimate betrayal, like betrayal unto death. Jesus was hated. And guys, the only reason that he ever even came and suffered in the first place was because of us because he considered us worthy of the cost of suffering. He wanted intimacy with us so bad that he gave everything. Like he endured the most brutal punishment and pain so that he could have intimacy with us and so that our intimacy with him would allow us to press into the suffering of our life so that he could ultimately come and redeem it. Without that, our pain would come to nothing. And I love the image um, in the story when Lazarus dies and Jesus comes to Mary and Martha and he comes to Mary and it says that he just weeps with her. He knew Lazarus was about to get risen from the dead. He wasn't necessarily crying because of that. He was crying because Mary's heart was broken because of the grief and the pain in her life. Jesus weeps with us in our suffering and our pain. And we, that picture of the Lord is so powerful, I think, in our moments of suffering. But guys, we also need community to join us in that journey too. Like we need people that aren't gonna have good answers. We don't need their answers anyways. We need people to come and sit with us and weep. And I remember in that season with my sister, I think it was at a World Mandate conference. I'm like sitting on the front, just like crying as one does, usually at World Mandate, but I'm like crying. And I've got this picture of just Jesus in my mind on the cross. And I'm like, Lord, I wanna be a Mary, like sitting at the front of the cross, like in my pain, in my grief, like just put me right up next to the cross with you. And I remember my D school director at the time, she was like, hey, she's like, I don't have a word for you or anything. I just feel like God said, come sit and cry with you. And so we did. We just sat there and cried for all of response time. It was great. But sometimes that's just what we need. Like we need people in the journey who are just going to weep with us and cry with us and rejoice with us too when there's victory in it. James 1.12 says this. It says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And there's this place, guys, where maybe we don't see the point of suffering in this life, but our decision to press into suffering is unto something, like this crown of life that God has for us. And... A lot of times, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm like, Lord, what do I have to offer? What do I have to give to you? 
but in a very real way, our suffering is one of the only things that we can give him on this side of eternity. Like there's this place where I can come and I can rejoice in my suffering and I can give him an offering of joy in the midst of pain. And the reality is we're gonna go to heaven someday. There's gonna be no more pain and no more suffering. And we're just gonna rejoice all the time, which is so sweet. But in this side of eternity, I wanna give God something that costs me. And the suffering of our lives is what costs us. I wanna bring an offering to the Lord. And what I love about the story of Mary, um, I ultimately didn't go that way with the sermon, but I studied Mary a ton this week as I was preparing for this message. And she learned how to posture herself with Jesus. Like from the first time he showed up, Martha's busy in the kitchen, she's sitting there at his feet. And then he shows up and Lazarus is dead. And the first thing she does is she runs and she sits at his feet. And then it's Jesus's turn to go to the cross and to suffer. And do you know what she does? She goes and she sits as close as she can and she sits at his feet. She didn't turn away from the suffering or the pain. She leaned in and she leaned into the presence of God in all of that. And the beautiful thing is who got to see Jesus first when he came back? Mary did. The one who pressed in until the end was the first to get to taste and see of the resurrection life that was at power, that was at work. Death is the doorway to resurrection life. Suffering may feel like death, and in a lot of ways it is, guys, but in the economy of God's kingdom, in the kingdom of God, the promise that we have is that the death and the suffering and the pain and the loss of our life is unto resurrection life, ultimately. Because as soon as, as, soon as we give it up, as soon as it's dead and gone, then God's like, yeah, now it's mine. Now I can do something with it. Would you guys stand with me? We've talked about a lot of things tonight. And I'm gonna give us a little bit of specific places to respond tonight. But more than anything, guys, I just want us to be with Jesus tonight. I want us to step into that path of intimacy that we have paved with him, or maybe we haven't really paved with him. Maybe we've been running. And so tonight, I just wanna invite us to step back into that place of intimacy with the Lord tonight. Whatever you need to do. And, and even if you're in the room and you're like, I'm good in this season, take your notes, same for another season, press into intimacy with God tonight. Rejoice. Maybe that looks more like Thanksgiving for you tonight. But if there's any part of you that feels apathetic, um, I would encourage you to come forward and get prayer tonight. I, I felt like today, just as I was praying and asking the Lord, I felt like there might be this place where you're like, I don't feel intimacy with Jesus, but it's actually because in past seasons when suffering has happened, you haven't dealt with the pain and you shoved it down and you tossed it to the side. And now you actually live more in a place of apathy. Um, and in order to get back into that place of intimacy with Jesus, you're gonna need to get that apathy taken off. And you're gonna need to maybe do some business with suffering and let Jesus come and heal you. And it might be in an old place. And then the second place that I felt like was highlighted tonight was just this topic of lordship. And this isn't like a shame thing. This isn't like a how surrendered are you? Like, is he the Lord of your life? 
And I think that's a place for all of us, a fresh evaluation of like, is he the Lord of my life? Does he have permission to say whatever he wants to say? Does he have permission to tell me to obey in whatever way he's asking me to? And so I just felt like there was even just like this, this holy place of us tonight of like, man, Lord, am I really under your Lordship? Because if I really want friendship with you and if I really want intimacy with you, I'm gonna have to settle that in my heart. And then finally, I just felt like there was this place of maybe just suffering with family. And I don't specifically know what it looks like to respond to that, but I felt like if there's this place where you've been carrying just the grief or the suffering of your family, um, to just come get prayer tonight and to have someone on our ministry just join you in that so that you're not alone in carrying that tonight. And so I'm gonna pray for us. Um, and then um, as I'm praying, like even if you just feel like God is stirring you, like feel free to come to the front. But God, we, we just say, we need you, Jesus, we need you. God, in good seasons, but especially in the hard seasons, we need you. And so, God, I, I just pray that you would come and would you speak right now? God, if there's places of lordship that we haven't come under, God, I ask that we would come under it right now, God, that we wouldn't miss the opportunity, Jesus, to, to step into fresh surrender with you again, Lord. God, if there's places of apathy, would you come and would you break them off? God, we don't wanna be apathetic or numb. We don't wanna be numb to the suffering. And so God, would you come and would you reawaken hearts tonight? God, would you breathe resurrection life on what has dead and gone tonight? And would you just speak life over us, God? But Jesus, whatever has hindered intimacy, God, we just ask that you would rip it up and tear it apart right now, God, and that you would come. I just pray for each person in this room, God, that you would make us more and more aware of your presence, God. We love you, Lord, and we just give this time to you. Would we come and would we respond? Let's respond to Jesus.